Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me to uh, back to the book of Romans in chapter 5. I'm going to do something in a minute, and and um, and I and I, I don't know why. What my whole motivation is? I think my motivation is I, I think there's a thrill in seeing this. I hope so. If, at least that's my motivation. But I remember one time um, I, I'm a name dropper too. But one time I was in the apartment with R.C. Sproul. And I've told you this story a dozen times about uh, asking him about what my motive was for a particular thing that I wanted to do. And, and um, uh, I, I said, you know, I don't know whether my motive is this good thing or this bad thing. And I, of course, specified which bad things I were talk- talking about. And he immediately jumped on it and said, it's probably that bad thing. That's your motive. And then he paused for a moment. He said, at least 30% of it. The other 70% is probably that a good thing. So just always know that there will never be 100% pure motive over anything. Um, we hope that most of our motives are pure, but there will never be 100% pure motive for anything. But my point is, I'm about to do something that um, you may be tempted to say, that is just a, an idle display of academic trivia. I hope it won't be. And I hope that you'll bear with me to see that that is not what it is, and um, and will you'll be able to drink deeply of the truth that I'm going to hopefully convey. We're in verses 20 and 21, and uh, we may, Lord willing, finish those two verses tonight. We'll see. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness, to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a, that's a marvelous couplet of verses, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, it is dripping, oozing with uh, statements of grace. And I want you to see how, how deep are the oozings. <laughs> Last week, we, we, we uh, fixed our attention on really that first sentence, the law entered that offense might abound. And what I was suggesting to you last week is that the purpose of the law, when it was given, was for the purpose of making offense abound. Um, that is, and I, and I mentioned you may recall four ways that the law does that. That is, that uh, by bringing the, the law alongside, uh, it increases our awareness of sin and guilt. Uh, and very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, that's what this little statement is. That gives you a brief purpose uh, for the existence of the law. But I want to suggest to you that that is really not the primary purpose of the law. It is indeed a secondary purpose of the law. But I wanted you to see something before we move any further. Because the primary purpose of the law, as mentioned by Paul in an um, in an earlier writing to the church at Galatia, it's in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. And I think you're well familiar with this text, but maybe you can, maybe you can join these two thoughts. Uh, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Paul states, The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. Now, that's the primary purpose of the law, is to bring us to Christ. But the way that the law does that is by increasing our awareness of sin 
such that we would despair of ever saving ourselves and flee to the Savior that he provided at Calvary. Now, do you get that? I mean, that's, that's not that all that... It, it's interesting, by the way, back in the Galatians 3 passage, uh, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. And I don't know about your Bibles. I'm, I've got this New Geneva Study Bible, but if you've got that one, it was interesting to me to look in the margin and the extremes to which the editors go to, let you, to make sure that you knew what the word tutor meant. In my margin, it says... In a household, the guardian responsible for the care and discipline of the children. That's very irregular for them to give you a whole definition of a word. They might, they might give you a one-word definition of that word, but here they give you a whole sentence to make sure that you understood what Paul had in mind when he used the word tutor. He says the law was our tutor. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means a tutor was, in a household, the guardian responsible for the care and discipline of the children. They want to make sure that you understand that the law was that. It was this device by which God would lead people to see their sin. That was the secondary purpose. The primary purpose being in hopes that they would land upon the Savior. I see my sin in all of its vileness, having been shown it by the law, and thus I see my great need of a Savior. So, gang, my point is, first and foremost, can you understand what a gracious gift is the law? The law was never intended to be anything other than something that would ultimately land us at the feet of Christ. It was born out of a gracious heart of God who said, how, I, I, to impose thoughts on God is almost irreverent, so, but you understand. But God is, how can I bring men to see their sins so much so that they will despair of their sin and long for a Savior? Ah, I'll give them a law. But meaning the Ten Commandments. And, and once men saw the law, they saw, oh my goodness, I fail at this point, this point, this point. And, and it seems to get worse. There must be another way. Ah, yes. And that way, of course, being the Savior that he provided at Calvary. So um, the law, instead of being some kind of killjoy, some kind of restriction to all of our, um, our famed liberties... The law is not none of that. The law is, a, is really a declaration of the great grace of God uh, that he would use it in a way that would ultimately tutor us, lead us by the hand to the Savior. That's the ultimate object of the law is to land you at the foot of Christ's cross. Now, that, that's really the, that first sentence of verse 20. Then he, there is a period, of course, in my translation, and you, I think you know that there are no punctuation marks in the Greek New Testament. But um, uh, it does help us to have that period there because Paul starts another sentence contained in verse 20. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Now, I'm not trying to be funny, nor am I trying to be crude. I, I'm trying to be... Um, very illustrative of the text, but you always need to watch out for Paul's buts. Whenever you find a but like this, 
Normally, Paul is about to introduce the gospel. Let, let, me, let me give you another example. Look at chapter 3. Um, I think it was Augustine. I think it was Augustine who first said, there is a lot of theology to be found in conjunctions. And that's what a, the but is. It's a conjunction. But chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, is this horrible description of the unregenerate man. And, and having described the unregenerate man, um, look at verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, gang, had Paul stopped there, we would have been left in despair. But notice, the law has condemned everybody, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. You have to, whenever you find Paul in one of his butts, right on the other side of that butt, you're, you're normal, he is normally going to introduce the gospel with this word. On numerous occasions do you find Paul doing that. Introducing the gospel with the conjunction, but. Uh, this is the situation, but. And then he goes on to introduce um, the great good news of the claims of the gospel. And that's what he does here, ladies and gentlemen, in chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, the law entered. The knowledge and awareness of sin increased manifold. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Now, guys, here's my exercise in, um, in academic trivia. But I hope by the time I'm finished, it will be more than that to you. If you'll notice in the Greek, uh, excuse me, in the English translation, um, of verse 20, you will find the word abound three times. The English word abound three times. Do you know what you're doing back there, Bruce? No, neither do I. I mean, uh, um, oh, maybe feedback from this thing up here, Jim? Oh, um, the Greek word pleonazo <clears throat> uh, means to grow or to increase. Now, the first time you find the, the word in verse 20, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound, you find a form of this word. Uh, it is in the uh, aorist subjunctive and it's got an ending on it something like this. Uh, without, I mean, in the, in the Greek language, ladies and gentlemen, um, the way they changed the, the tense of the verbs or the person, like first person singular or third person plural, the way they did that, you know, we do that in the English language too. I, you, he, she, it, we, you, they. Remember that? Remember all that, the conjugation of verbs? Well, <laughs> well anyway, in the, in the Greek language, one of the, the way that they do that and the way that they give a, a tense and a number and a, and a tense to a verb is through the index. 
So uh, a lot of times, um, uh, I mean, you're not, for instance, in the, I think I've said this to you before, in the English language, if I were to say this, you need to do this, you would not know whether I meant you singular or you plural. But in the Greek language, if you find you, you will know whether it's singular or plural via the index. <laughs> well, there's no y'all. Uh, <laughs> but but the, the point is, the Greek language is a very exact language. And that's why I'm convinced that that Rome was ruling in the world, or, or it, that it allowed a common language to be acceptable in this part of the world, so that the Greek New Testament could be, wit- could, be uh, could be written. But anyway, that's the first time that you see the word. The second time you see the word, you see the same root word with a, and um, you see the same root in there, but it's in a different tense. Now look, guys, look at, the, look at verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, on both of those instances, when sin is being discussed, the Greek word is pleonazo. It means to increase or make grow, or to abound. But when Paul got ready to describe grace, as he does, in the, but where sin abounded, grace abounded. You see the same English word. But in the mind of the Apostle Paul, it was not fitting to use the same Greek word. Now, it's the same English word, I understand. But he uses an entirely different word. Um, Parasuo. It's not pleonazo. It's parasuo. Now, stay with me. I'm not trying to... That's why I question my motive. I'm not trying to impress you with my vast knowledge of the Greek language because uh, being out of seminary some 27 years, you lose touch with a lot of what they taught you. But, but this was important. In the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when he got ready to describe sin, he used this word. When he got ready to describe grace, he, he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, rejects this word. And when he's describing what grace did, he's got to use a different word. Now, guys, this is another word that means to make grow. Um, or uh, there's another, to overflow. Uh, very similar in their meaning, but different words. We have that in the same in, in, the, in the English language. But as Paul was prone to do, Paul creates words. Paul made up words. That did, this word does exist in the, in the Greek uh, lexicons, in a Greek dictionary. You can find that word. Actually, you can find this other one too. But Paul made it up. He's the only one who used it. I, I shouldn't say that. I don't know that for sure. But... Paul, when he got to get, gets ready to describe grace, he says, wait a minute. I'm not going to use that word that I used to describe how sin increased. Not only does he choose another word to describe the abounding character of grace, 
but he attaches a prefix, a prefix, that's wrong. That's the English. Hupere. Does that sound like anything in the English language that you know? Super. <laughs> this is a U, this is a P, this is an E, this is an R. U-P-E-R. When he got ready to describe grace, it wasn't enough just to change words for Paul. What he does now is he adds super abounded. In terms of trying to describe what grace did, Paul could not have said more. There was not anything available to Paul to say more than what he said. And the idea, ladies and gentlemen, is not that sin abounded, but grace came alongside. And, well, when sin, you know, it tipped the scales in, in, terms of, in terms of sin. But then when grace came, it abounded and leveled things back. That's not, the, that's not the, what, what Paul is communicating. Grace doesn't simply come along sin and cancel it out. Grace doesn't simply abound. It abounds much more. It super abounds. It is not simply the, the object of Paul to tell you that good news is to be had. Grace has canceled out sin. That is not, well, that is good news, but that is not the nature of the good news that Paul has in that text. The nature of the good news, ladies and gentlemen, is not only that sin abounded, but that sin, I mean, not only that grace abounded, but that grace superabounded. It abounded. And if you, I don't know whether your translation is like mine, those words much more, they're not in the Greek language. They're not in the Greek text. What the translators were trying to do is give you this sense of this hooper. Um, and, the, and the way they chose to do that is that abounded. You know, and guys, what, what I'm saying to you is, when, you, when you're reading your English Bible, and you come along and you say, sin abounded, there's the word, but where sin abounded, there it is the second time. Grace abounded, there's, there it is the third time. I think you would, I think it would only be understandable that we would miss something very distinctive. And the distinction that he's making is, not only is it not the same word, he, he creates a different word to convey something that is um, the most intense, superlative word that didn't even exist before he uses it. That's what Paul says grace does. Sin abounded and now is bad. But! You see, and you remember I said watch out for Paul's butts because he's going to introduce the gospel. Well, he introduces it this way. But where sin abounded, grace, hooper, parasuo, super abounded. 
Guys, um, he said with that one word as much as language would allow him to say in his description of all that grace has accomplished. This, this, the, the principle that, that I'm trying to illustrate and articulate is that what grace has done is not merely counteract what sin has done. Grace has not simply counteracted the awful ravages of sin. What I have on one side does not simply counterbalance the other side. In fact, there is to be no comparison between what grace has done and what sin has done. Sin has done a terrible thing. But what grace has done, you can't even compare the two of them. Because what grace has done, the, the, the end result is overflowing on the side of grace. It is, it is super abundant abounding grace that is God's answer to sin abounding and I want to suggest to you ladies and gentlemen that it's this much more principle that you find in verse 20 Um, it's in that much more a principle that you find assurance of your salvation Sin has ravaged us. Yes. And every time it raises its ugly head, we're reminded how ravaged we are. But here's the gospel. Grace has not simply counterbalanced it. It has gone way beyond what sin has done to us, guys. Um... Whatever sin may have done to you in the past, what God has done for us in Christ is infinitely greater. Whatever impact, whatever terrible things sin left you with, grace has left you with more. Uh, Guys, um... The design, I think you can, I think it can be said that the design of God in, in permitting sin is to provide a backdrop which allows Him to do something so, so much greater than what sin has done. You take away the existence of sin and you'd never know the abounding the superabounding, the superlative of God's grace. Now, guys, um, to me, um, to me, that is richer and profounder truth than simply saying, "Because I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven." Now, I'm not. I'm not trying to denigrate that that truth. That's a true truth. But do you know what God has done to allow you to make to be able to say? I'm going to heaven because I'm a Christian. It is abounding grace that has not simply um, 
confronted sin, taken the field with sin, and pulled to a draw. No. Grace. Who pair? Abounds. Um, that to me, ladies and gentlemen, is, uh, I hope that wasn't too boring in terms of an academic uh, observation. Now verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice again what Paul has done here. He's, this is that uh, Pauline method of contrast. He says, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness. Do you see the comparison? So that sin reigned, even so grace reigned. Um, again, you see Paul, you, like he did in verses 14 through 19, or really you know, 12 through 19, he's contrasting and comparing. But here the contrast in verse 21 is between the reign of sin and the reign of grace. The only alternative to sin is grace. Never has the alternative to sin been law. Never was there, oh, I see the sin. Okay, this is how to solve it. Obedience to the law. No, ladies and gentlemen, the only alternative to, to sin has always been grace. Nothing but grace can save us from the reign of sin. Um, and, and that's, of course, such a major misunderstanding in our culture today. The only thing that will deal with one's plight as a sinner is not some kind of moral reform. It is casting ourselves on grace and loads and loads of grace. But you will notice the, the word that he uses here is reigned. Sin reigned. There was a time when sin had really indeed set up a kingdom in us. Sin reigned. It didn't influence. It didn't make things bad. It reigned in an in unregenerate state. In fact, the, the unregenerate man sins because he can't help it. Because sin has brought slavery. Because sin reigns. And, and there's a sense in which, ladies and gentlemen, that the whole Bible is a record of the, of the struggle, of the, the history of the struggle between the reign of sin and the reign of grace. Between these enormous competing powers. Um, and grace is the only power strong enough to take the field against sin, guys. Just as um, sin reigned when I, uh, when I embrace this gospel, grace now reigns. Um, now that's the comparison that he's making. Whereas once sin reigned, now grace reigns. Sin used to be a kingdom in my life with a king, and I obeyed the king. But now grace reigns. Um, grace doesn't just simply get me started, or grace doesn't just 
help me get over the hump or, or supplement all my efforts. Grace reigns. It reigns just like sin used to reign. You know that, that, that passage in Hebrews 4 that I think most of you know, that we're to draw near to the throne of grace? Isn't it interesting that grace is enthroned? Because it reigns. There's a kingship. to Just like there was a kingship to sin, there is a kingship of grace. Grace reigns. It not only simply initiates salvation, and having started salvation, it, uh, then we complete it. No. Grace initiates salvation and then completes it because it reigns in us. Salvation from beginning to end is all of grace. This superabounding grace. And if that were not so, ladies and gentlemen, I want to suggest to you, none of us would make it to the end. None of us would make it to Canaan's shores or the, the opposite side. We would, we would remain forever on the stormy banks and, uh, and then ultimately be separated from God. If it weren't all from beginning to end grace. Now, notice what he says. Even so, grace might reign through righteousness. Gang, the outstanding characteristic of this great dynasty in my life is righteousness. That is the outstanding characteristic in my life that grace is reigning is righteousness. The great the reign of grace does not take sin lightly because righteousness is its its grace might reign through righteousness. Gang it is very critical that in our understanding, we never isolate grace from righteousness. The man who says, because I'm under grace, it doesn't matter what I do, I can sin as much as I like. He has forgotten that grace reigns. That there is a kingship to it. That there is a, there is a king to it. That issues commands that he expects me to obey. But there are others who, um, because they have forgotten that it is a throne of grace, they live fearfully and legally and, and, and caught up with all kinds of performance. No, ladies and gentlemen, this is a throne, this is a reign of grace. And its primary characteristic in the lives of those whose dominion it has over them is righteousness. Did I say that poorly? The primary characteristic of those who are reigned by grace is righteousness. We must never separate grace from righteousness. And then finally, um, there is only one who could possibly bring about this reign of grace. And of course, Paul mentions him, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's that Greek preposition again, through. I've got it under, uh, underlined in, my, in, um, in chapter 5. Um, through is in verse 2. It is in, um, excuse me, it is in verse 1. It is in verse 2. It is in verse 9. It is in verse... 11, um, and now we find it again 
in verse 21. So what is that? Six times in a matter of 21 verses, what you get is a reference to the mediatorial role of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. Through Jesus Christ, grace reigns where sin once ravaged. And it reigns superabundantly. Let's quit. Our Father, I do pray that you will give us all a great grasp of these marvelous truths. Father, um, your people miss out on a whole lot because we have not yet grasped how extensive the work of grace you have performed is in us. We do remember the days where sin reigned. And um, now, having been identified with Christ, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Now grace reigns. And sin does stick up its ugly head from time to time, reminding us from whence we came. But... It is the superabounding, much more nature of grace, principle of grace, that brings us to the conclusion that we are safe. That you have not only canceled out sin, you have gone way beyond to establish a reign, a throne of grace in each of our lives through Jesus Christ our Lord. Might that be our everlasting song and glory that it was through Christ that grace came to reign in our lives. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.